Hi guys, welcome to God Talk Pod, episode 7. This is John 1. My name is Glenn, and this is part of our ongoing reread of Game of Thrones. That's book 1 of George uh, Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. We're getting some traction on the new website and the show, so please do check out the site and use it to submit questions and feedback. And remember that there's also a voice message button or feature available um, on the pod. I think it's on Spotify. And as a reminder, we're no longer doing the blow-by-blow recaps. I just think that makes for a tighter, shorter episode focused on the analysis. (laughs) Theoretically, that's my value add anyway. Uh, So we're just going to give a high-level summary and then go straight into the analysis. Okay, here's our high-level summary of John 1. There's very little action in the chapter. This is a very uh, much a talky chapter, which shows John in a number of set pieces, a number of conversations with important men, older men, specifically Benjamin Stark and Tyrion Lannister. But as we have said so many times already, or cautioned maybe is a better way to put it, this chapter is it's not just important in its own right, or it's not important just for what happens. It's important because it helps reframe and it relates to the chapters that have gone before and it lays the groundwork for some important things yet to come. We will explain some of those relationships here and we'll talk about why some of the seemingly innocuous things that you see here are in fact or could in fact be highly consequential. The scene, the action, it all occurs around a feast in Winterfell's Great Hall. It's it's a party thrown for the king and the queen and their entourage. And of course, being a bastard, John is not allowed a seat at the high table. So instead, he is on the back benches with the commoners. That's very important because it gives him an outsider's view of proceedings. We get to hear his assessment of events of the king and queen and their children and his own family. And in a book, a series, which is so much about the problem of the eyes, about the parallax view, this is very important information for us. It's very important to get this new perspective, this outsider's perspective. That point of view, that outsider's perspective is going to be very crucial to how we see characters and problems in the novel. And through the interactions that John has, it's going to give us tremendous insight into John's own character as well. And after we get John's take on each of the lords and the ladies and their children, he has an encounter with Benjen, who is Ned's brother and who is the first ranger of the Night's Watch. We'll have much more to say about this in the analysis, but for now, let's just say that John asks Benjen to take him with him back to the wall. But Benjen, Benjen does actually give John props on his powers of insight, his powers of observation, and he does say that they could use such a man at the wall. But Benjen basically tells him straight out, hey man, you are just a kid. You're too young for the wall. The wall's no place for a boy. I mean, I think he squashes it straight away. Almost as if to prove the point. You know, John gets drunk. He acts immature and prideful. His feelings get hurt when Benjen says, no, you're not ready. He starts to cry. He runs away. I mean, he acts like a child. So it's one thing to say, for Benjen to say, you're too young. Go live a little. But, you know, the guy, just to prove the point, George shows him acting like a, a child. Okay, so Tyrion runs outside. Oh, sorry. 
John runs outside and he runs into Tyrion, right? He encounters Tyrion outside. <laughs> the great part is when he, Tyrion's like, oh, well, I'm out here because I know better than you, right? I am more mature than you. I know to leave the party before I humiliate myself. Whereas John, like, uh, you know, he, he starts to cry and then he runs out. So their conversation is short, but it is massively important for the themes of the book. So we will talk about this much more in the analysis, but in effect, what Tyrion says, or, or Tyrion just like drops some hard truths on him, just like Benjen did, right? Just like Benjen did. They, they Both of these guys just tell it to him straight. But the difference between the two is that whereas Benjen is speaking to him from on high, you know, he, he ranks high in the Night's Watch. So when he's talking, he's talking down to Jon as like as a child. But the difference is Tyrion, he drops knowledge on John, but he does it from a point where he says, hey, look, I'm just like you. I'm a bastard, too. And, you know, he uses the famous line, all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. And at some point in the text, it even says when they're talking, Tyrion is looking up at John and John is looking down at Tyrion. So it's the reverse of the Benjen John relationship. So. I, I do think it's important to recognize that Tyrion does treat him much more like an equal, whereas John, uh, Benjen calls him son and things like this. So we'll talk more about this in the uh, in the analysis. Okay, with respect to the analysis, we'll do the standard line-by-line -line interpretation. But before that, there is something we need to get out of the way. The first thing we need to do is recognize that this chapter, John 1, is in fact a callback to Danny One. Now, earlier I presented Cat One and Danny One as a pair, as a dyad, let's say. Well, if we had wanted to wait a few more chapters, perhaps we could have presented them all together as a triad, as a troika, or as another leg to the stool. Because while Cat One and Danny One are absolutely an obvious pair, well, it turns out that Danny One and John One are another absolutely obvious pair. I say that because clearly some of the things that go on here are direct references or repetitions even of events that happen in Danny 1. For example, Danny finds herself at a party where she is the misfit, the odd one out. Specifically, she's the only woman in the entire place. She doesn't belong. So now we see John. He's the bastard. He's not highborn. He doesn't belong at the high table. He's on the margins of the party. He's the outcast from the feast and on the periphery. Okay, now, there, and there's other similarities, right? Both of them, neither one, neither one has a mother. Both are characterized as having excellent insight and powers of observation. Both see things that their own brothers don't. And Danny one, I mean, right, Viserys is obviously oblivious. He's oblivious to the fact that Magister Illyrio is mocking him. Viserys doesn't notice any of the details or things going on around him. In the same way, in this chapter, John's brother Rob is grinning. This is a quote. He's grinning like a fool, and he doesn't have the sense to realize how stupid Marcella is. End quote. John even says that. Here's a quote. A bastard has to learn to notice things, to read the truth behind, or read the truth that 
people hide behind their eyes. There you go. I'm not very good at quoting, but there you go. So both have good, both John and Danny, both John and Danny have good powers of perception. It seems like that in a book, <laughs> in an entire series that is about the problem of the eyes and perception, that's going to be an important skill, right? <laughs> it's going to be a very important marker, and it's important that these two characters have the power of perception and others around them don't. But, but what's more than that? What's more than that is both have oblivious, blind brothers. I don't want to call Rob a fool, but I mean, John, I think John does call him a fool. They both have these blind dudes for brothers or, or, or similarities between the two chapters is John and Danny both cry at some point during the feast, both sit up or stand up straighter, right? This talks about them, how they change their posture. They have physical reactions to their circumstances. Both chapters, this is interesting. Both chapters feature massive, obese, perfumed men of power and influence in the form of Illyrio and King Robert. Both chapters, the, the titular characters, Danny and John, both meet two men who will be of great importance to them. Jorah and Drogo on the one hand, Benjen and Tyrion on the other hand. The Golden Collar, we talked a lot about the Golden Collar, the Choker. The Choker appears in both chapters. There's a petulant boy king, or would-be, I guess, right? Viserys and Joffrey are, are would-be boy kings. So, I mean... There's so much. I mean, all right, you got it, right? There's there's a ton of doubling going on. The chapters closely parallel one another. They're, they're, the fit is super tight. And I guess the question we have to ask is, well, why? Or, or so what, I guess, right? Why, why does George do that? Well, I mean, one obvious answer is that this creates a powerful connection between John and Danny. There is an, well, maybe a connection isn't the right word. There's an equivalence. They are equal. They're going through equal experiences. They have equal skills and, and powers of perception. They're in equal scenarios. You know, they both don't have mothers. They both have dopey uh, brothers. I mean, so so there's an equivalence that's established between the two. They are put on an equal footing. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Their positions are similar. Uh, think about it this way. Viserys will be king. And for Danny, there's nothing. Rob will be the Lord of Winterfell. And for John, there's nothing. And with respect to their place in the books, I mean, think about the physical geography. Danny is on the periphery of the action. She's on an entirely different continent. Well, John is going to go to the wall. So he's on the periphery of the action. He, he is like, like, he couldn't be any further removed from King's Landing when he's on the wall. And he's taken the vow, right, not to participate in any of the shenanigans around the game, the Game of Thrones. So, so these two people... I mean, they just could not possibly physically or, or in the context of the books, just be any further removed from, from the action, from the game. Okay, so that's fine. Let's just call it good and let's go on to the other events in the chapter. Okay, so here we go with some analysis. Uh, the first page of my version is page 41. On page 41, George mentions an important concept. He says that George relished... <laughs> John, John relished the stories and tales that they were telling. Okay, it just, we don't have to go nuts here. I don't have to overdo it. I mean, we're on chapter five of book one. <laughs> but notice the emphasis on stories 
and Tales. And now, remember, the title of the entire series is A Song. A Song of Ice and Fire. What are stories and tales and songs? What are they but representations of reality? Ways of thinking about or understanding reality. We've already talked about this in the Plato episode, right? Or in the context of Plato. But here in this chapter, we are going to meet the Lannisters and the entire motif, the, the thematic organizing principle for the Lannisters is the issue of appearance or maybe specifically or better said, the difference between appearing appearance and reality or maybe appear yeah maybe appearing and being is right um the difference between appearance and reality and that that is the central issue for the lannisters that's going to carry on for the next like five books and so george is hinting at that here oh i should say i mean as an aside right this is like important to note that's not something that george invented nor is it some cool literary criticism tool or thing that i just invented or picked out <laughs> the issue about appearing and being or the appearance and reality that honest to god is maybe the oldest of all problems in philosophy and, and really if you think about it it's probably it's you know one of the oldest problems in literature i mean at least yeah at least goes back to don quixote right so I guess I'm saying, um, if this is the first time you're hearing about that, well, then don't worry, it won't be the last, right? I mean, this is not new. And if it is, of course, familiar to you, then great, you know, so much the better. Welcome home. You know, this is, uh, this is familiar territory. Okay, now, page 42, here we go. We see the royal procession, and it is entirely about how Robert and the Lannisters appear. Of Cersei, we hear that, this is a quote, she was as beautiful as men said. So the story and the image seem to jibe, right? Oh, that's good. But the next sentence, and I quote, John could see through her smile. So she appears to be beautiful, but beneath the mask, there is something else entirely. So again, the appearing and the being are not the same. Next paragraph, John has been raised. He's been <laughs> pumped up. His head is filled up with what? With stories, stories of King Robert, representations of King Robert as the fiercest warrior in all the land. But what's the reality? What does John see? He sees, and I quote, a fat man, red-faced under his beard, sweating through his silks. The next paragraph, we get the children. Marcella is a girl under golden curls, glancing slyly at Rob, but John, and I quote, decides that she is insipid. Interestingly, he has nothing bad to say. Interestingly, right? He has nothing bad to say about Tommen. But then he gets to Joffrey, and we get a, actually a very detailed description and an assessment. But the conclusion that John reaches is just that he didn't like, and I quote, the disdainful way Joff looked around Wonderfell's Great Hall. So, okay, so that's the kids. But now, now we get the brothers. We get the lion and the imp. So we get an entire paragraph about how great and beautiful and how manly Jamie looks. After which we hear that John 
found it hard to look away from him. And moreover, right, he says, this is, this is important. This is what a king should look like. This is what a king should look like. Okay, also, and this is going to be important later, and I quote, they called him the Lion of Lannister to his face and Kingslayer behind his back. So in one aspect, a lion, in another, a traitor, a Kingslayer. Okay, finally, we come to Tyrion, who says he's waddling along, and he's called the ugliest of Lord Tywin's brood. All that the gods had given Jaime and Cersei, they had denied Tyrion. He's a dwarf. His head is too large for his body. He has a smashed-in face. And note, note, two different colored eyes. Now, I have mentioned... You know, we've mentioned before and that there are certain details, certain words, certain concepts, certain lines that force you, that force you to stop. You have to stop and reassess and think, what did I just read? Is this, is this real? And, and if so, what are the implications? Well, and remember, like some examples, right? In Brand 1, uh, Ned is 35 years old. Well, when you read that, that is a clear, clear shout out to Dante. Everything that comes after, you have to think to yourself, okay, are we, is this, are, are we in Dante's realm here or not? Or in the cat chapter, we hear about River Run and we hear about Cersei. You, you have to, when you see River Run, you immediately think of James Joyce. And when you see Cersei, you immediately think of James Joyce Ulysses specifically. So you have to stop and ask yourself, is he really intentionally pointing me to James Joyce here? Or the descent down into the crypts. Maybe that's the best one. I just did, right? We just talked about John 1. Oh, sorry, Eddard 1. We just did Eddard 1. When they descend down into the crypts, that's like, Plato's descent or Socrates' descent down to the Piraeus, the descent down into the cave. Or if you think about it in Homeric terms, the descent down into the land of the dead. I mean, you can't, like those things are so symbolic and so important. You, you just have to stop and recognize them and think about what the hell's going on here. And so I'm telling you here now in this chapter, we've just hit another one of those things. <laughs> It is Tyrion's physical description. Tyrion's physical description is a showstopper, okay? Like, something important is going on here. Okay, so first let's think about it in, in Joycean terms. In Joycean terms, we know that Ulysses is about the problem of the eyes, the ineluctable modality of the visible. Like, that's the famous line. The ineluctable modality of the visible, the parallax, the problem, shut your eyes and see, right? Those are all the Ulysses takes. George's version is... As we've just seen, the problem appearing versus being, the problem of the eyes. So, so given that, given those things, it is massively, we have to recognize this is massively important that, that he notes that Tyrion has two different colored eyes. Tyrion is being singled out right here, right now, as a very special character. He is a privileged character in the book because if, if it's about the parallax, if it's about, you know, being able to see things from two distinct points of view, well, 
nobody else has that advantage. He 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 has two distinct points of view. Um, okay, so so that's um, that's the Joycean angle. Now let's think about in Dante terms. Let's think about the description again. His hair was so blonde that it could be white. His body is tiny, but his head is large. He is the union of two opposites. His eyes are two different colors. So two things in one body, two things at the same time, two entities or aspects combined into one. Well, I mean, it's not an accident that that is one of the central themes in Dante's purgatory. To enter purgatory proper, to, to, to pass through Peter's gate, St. Peter's gate, it requires not one, but two keys. Before Dante actually enters paradise, he dreams of what? He dreams of both Rachel and Leah. That's two different aspects of Christianity. Paradise itself is the Garden of Eden. So who lives in the Garden of Eden? but Adam and Eve, two aspects of mankind. While he is in paradise, what does he see? A griffin, that is a lion and an eagle conjoined. That is one creature with two aspects. Now, more important even, what does the griffin represent in the um, in the allegory that he sees it? There's it's like it's famously called the allegory within the allegory. He 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 sees the the griffin as part of this as this play or this allegory in front of him. The griffin represents Jesus. Well, what does Jesus have? Two aspects, divine and human, or mortal and immortal, however you want to put it. The point is two aspects, one body. Dante's entire, entire journey through purgatory is about the body and the soul. Everything is, is at least in purgatory, at least as we build towards paradise, everything it is, is a matter of this duality. It's these two aspects. Oh, yeah, I forgot. When, when he's in paradise, I forgot this part. When you're in paradise, he has to pass through, or maybe it's drink from. I, I think, yeah, he has to drink from, from two different rivers. I mean, come on. We know that in Joycean terms, right, he's an advantaged character because two eyes, two different, seeing from two different points of view, that gives him advantage with respect to the parallax, basically forming a complex view of a problem. In Dantean terms, he clearly is an advantaged character because he has the dual aspect. Everything about him is this dual aspect or this dual nature. The dual, <laughs> the duality at least gets you as far as paradise. So, so in Dantean terms, he's a very privileged character also. Okay, but the other special episode that we've done is about Plato. What, what could possibly, what could this little dwarven character have to do with Plato? Well, I, I have to tell you, we just, we've met a guy here. He has a big misshapen head. He has two googly eyes. He's hideously ugly. He has an awkward gait. Well, you, I mean, it, it turns out that that, fits the description of the real, actual, historical Socrates. There is an excellent description of the historical Socrates to, to as, as good as we could possibly figure in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that is available online for free, accessible to anybody. It is an excellent, excellent resource. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you go to the 
Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Socrates page, there is an entire section about, and, and I quote, Socrates' strangeness, and it talks about his bizarre physical appearance, uh, his eyes being so far apart that he could see in front of him and on the periphery at the same time. He's just, he's hideous. And so, and so we hear also that Tyrion is called the imp, and at the end of the chapter, John will compare Tyrion to a gargoyle, which is a mythological creature, while Socrates is often compared to a satyr, or, or a satyr, if you like, but I think it's a satyr. He's compared to a satyr, or a satyr and it's said that he looked more like a, sa a satyr than a man. So those descriptions, the descriptions, the physical resemblance between the two, of course, Socrates was not a dwarf. He was full size. In fact, his constitution, his physical health and his constitution were are famous. So, I mean, is that, is that a shocker or what? Yes, I'm, I'm telling you that I believe, I believe that it is very likely that George R.R. R. Martin is linking the little misshapen imp Tyrion. He's linking him to Socrates who is the godfather of all of Western philosophy. So, yes, I, I'm saying that with a straight face. Okay, so now let's turn to the next section. That's the part where he interacts with Benjen. Oh, actually, you know what? Okay, before we do that, we shouldn't skip Ghost. There's actually a scene where Ghost gets to strut his stuff. He gets to face off against a bigger dog over half of a honey chicken. Ghost is marked out as being different in so many ways. It's really, it's hard to count them all. But number one, well, obviously we know he's a dire wolf. He's an albino. He's silent. He has red eyes. Of course, what's interesting about that is we've just seen the weirwood trees in an earlier chapter. We just saw the weirwood trees in, in Cat 1. So that concept of silent, white face, staring red eyes, that's not new to us. But again, what's interesting is that it is so similar to the weirwood trees, though there must be some link there. Right now, we don't know what it is. We can't know what it is. But, but I mean, that's obvious. I mean, there's, they're so alike. George doesn't make that mistake. That's not an accident, right? So those two are they're like that for a reason. And also, we should say the eyes make him distinct, right? And that was true back at the beginning. All the other pups were blind, but Ghost could see. So we've just established that the eyes are going to be important in the series. So the fact that Ghost has red eyes and no one else does, that seems to be, or none of the other direwolves do, that seems to be a very important indicator that he's different, that he's been set out in some way. He's unlike the others. Oh, and this is actually another, this is actually interesting. Okay, here's a good one. When they are talking about Ghost, Benjen says, there are still direwolves beyond the wall. And that is followed closely by a sentence that is, and I quote, don't you usually eat at table with your brothers? That's Benjen asking John, don't you usually eat at table with your brothers? Well, George has put those two sentences virtually side by side for a reason. First, let's recognize that, right, we just came out of a discussion about how different, how strange, how unique Ghost is. But then Benjen says, well, yeah, I mean, sure, he's odd here, but he doesn't, maybe he doesn't seem like he belongs here, but... There are still direwolves beyond the wall, right? You know that. 
So he's not really that odd at all there. Ghost is out of place here, but in a different context, it turns out that he fits right in. He'd be right at home. Now, look at the second sentence. Why aren't you at table with your brothers? Well, we know the answer. John's a bastard. He's different. He's not like the others. So yes, he is odd here. He does not belong here. In this context, he is separate and distinct from the rest of his family. But, but I mean, look, hey, there are still direwolves beyond the wall. There's a place where these sort of social conventions don't apply. So in just those two sentences, the issues and the ideas in those, they will come back. They will pay off later. They'll pay off in Storm of Swords, two books from now. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, he really has just done a remarkable job. We have to recognize he's done a remarkable job here. Okay, now the next page or two really brings out another one of the central themes of the books. And it is actually, it's one that we haven't really talked about very much, but it, but it really does hit hard here. It is about the question of maturity, of, about how we learn and how we grow. And the entire discussion between Benjen and John can be understood that way. John is just a kid. He's a boy. He's 14. I mean, I was a boy of 14 once and, you know, I mean, it, it was pretty bad. So, you know, but, but again, George, here's George's genius. He doesn't just tell us, oh, John's 14 and therefore immature. He does an amazing detailed job. He shows John's immaturity. On these pages, John goes from being prideful to being angry to being jealous to being humiliated. He talks, he, right? He talks in absolute certainty. He's righteous, right? I mean, only, only an immature kid can speak with absolute certainty on some subject and be absolutely righteous and say things like, I forget nothing and I will never father a bastard. I mean... Absolute statements, bro. Don't, they don't work. You know, no mature person is going to shout out those things. However, we do. We should note, though, that George says bastards do grow up faster. Bastards grow up faster. They have to learn to see. They have to learn to notice things. And indeed, John does get props from Benjen for his powers of perception. So that is important to note, right? That, that it really is important to note. It's not a complete whitewash. I mean, we did just talk about Rob and how Rob doesn't even see that Marcella is or, or Marcella is insipid. So John does have, relatively speaking, he has pretty good powers of perception. But that doesn't change the fact that he's just a, a naive kid who has no life experience, and that's not John's fault. That's just how it is. Or, or say it this way: It's not that he he's not incapable of learning he is just young and naive and he needs more experience and or think of it this way he needs coaching he needs mentoring and time in the game and he may well mature into a fully functioning powerfully perceptive uh grown mature man but he's just not there yet Oh, and on this subject of maturity, that it's related to this issue of fathers and sons, George raises it specifically here when he has Benjen, Benjen calls John son, and John reacts like a petulant child, right? He says, I'm not your son. And Benjen says, oh, well, more's the pity. 
How about come back to me, talk to me after you have fathered some bastards of your own? So it's clear that there's some special status. There's some wisdom. There's some status that goes along with being a father and the difference between fathers and sons. That's a huge issue in, in literature. It's a huge issue in the book. It's a huge issue in the series. But it's also a massive issue in, in uh, literature elsewhere. And maybe, uh, and almost certainly, I should say, actually, almost certainly, I'll do a special episode on this topic eventually. You know, there is a very famous uh, 19th century Russian novel by Turgenev that's called Fathers and Sons. <laughs> so it doesn't get any more explicit than that. Well, certainly my favorite novel of all time, arguably the best novel of all time, is Brothers Kar- uh, Brothers Karamazov. That is also about a father and his sons. Oh man, yeah, maybe I will do. Yeah, I think I will have to do a special episode on that. Okay, so in the text, John is humiliated, right? He's embarrassed. He realizes, oh my God, I'm acting like a petulant child. And he's humiliated and he starts to cry and he runs out. And and what's worse is he has to also know that he's really, uh, you know, Benjen is dropping words of wisdom on him. So it's not as if Benjen is berating him or treating him badly. And on the contrary, like here's a guy, an old guy who's giving it to you straight. And all you can do is like, you know, pop off and embarrass yourself. So in any event, John runs away. He's humiliated. He runs out. And that's when we get to meet Tyrion. Before we meet Tyrion, I just want to point out that there is a there's this really throwaway paragraph in between him fleeing Benjen and him encountering Tyrion in the yard. Literally nothing happens, but I just told you that George was a genius for tight writing and for putting together seemingly unrelated themes and issues into one paragraph or in close proximity to one another. He does it again, even in this just nothing paragraph on page 46. I'll just, I'll read it. The yard was quiet and empty. A lone sentry stood high on the battlements of the inner wall, his cloak pulled tight around him against the cold. He looked bored and miserable as he huddled there alone. But John would have traded places with him in an instant. Otherwise, the castle was dark and deserted. John had seen an abandoned hold fast once a drear place where nothing moved but the wind and the stones kept silent about whatever people had lived there. Winterfell reminded him of that tonight. Okay, so a lone sentry cold on the wall. Okay, minor spoiler, minor spoiler. John will trade places with him. Okay, so it just says John would trade places with the lone sentry on the wall. John is going to go to the wall. So so here you go. But really, okay, so but here's the thing. It's the it's the outcast. He's an outcast. He's a loner. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong here. He didn't belong on the main table. He doesn't belong on the dais. He doesn't belong in, in the hall. He doesn't belong here. He belongs there. So he's kind of, a, he's he's not comfortable here. He wants to be somewhere else. So, and the second part also relates to this, right? The second part about Winterfell, it reminded him of another place. Are we in Winterfell? Or are we in the other place? Are we here or are we there? Everything in the chapter is is displaced, including John. So the theme of the chapter is, the theme of John 1 is John doesn't belong. He's the bastard. He's the outcast. 
Well, again, in just a nothing paragraph, George has found another way to emphasize that in just this little bit here. It's a seemingly innocuous material. Okay, now for the last bit. This is the bit where John meets Tyrion. And so now, okay, consider that now when John says to him, hey, why aren't you at the feast? He says, Tyrion says, I drank too much wine and I learned long ago that it is considered rude to vomit on your brother. So in contrast to John, Tyrion did not humiliate himself in front of everyone in the hall. Tyrion has life experience. He has made mistakes, obviously, and he's learned from them and he makes better decisions. So if this chapter is about maturity, well, Tyrion obviously has it and John does not. Now, this next part is very important. Tyrion says, You're Ned Stark's bastard, aren't you? Which strikes John as insulting and rude. And frankly, it strikes me as insulting and rude too. But Tyrion says, Sorry if I offended you, but dwarves don't have to be tactful. I can dress badly and say any damn thing that comes into my head. Now, let's stop there for a second. And let's, yeah, let's stop there and bring it back to Socrates. Let's go back to our Socrates discussion. We've already talked about how Tyrion resembles Socrates physically or facially, but here he acts, he is behaving like Socrates himself behaved. Socrates was always hanging around with young dudes, and young dudes always wanted to hang around Socrates. He was considered a great teacher. He was sought out by young men all over Athens. The point is, Socrates was always associated with this like cohort of young guys who he was, uh, they were his students. So here, Tyrion is associating with and dropping knowledge on 14-year-old John. Okay, the next part. Socrates himself was totally, to I mean totally, disinterested in social conventions. He would just come right out and say and say rude stuff to people's faces. He wouldn't even think twice about it. Uh, what's an example? The example would be the Republic. You know, in the Republic, the entire discussion, uh, um, yeah, pretty much the entire discussion takes place in, in one guy's house, uh, Polymarchus's house. Well, when they go to Polymarchus's house at the very beginning, his dad is there. So Polymarchus's dad is a guy named Cephalus. Cephalus is an old man. So what does Socrates do when he sees Cephalus? He says, oh, great. I love talking to old dudes. So he calls him out. I love talking to old people. Number one. Number two, he says, what do you think, Cephalus? How do you like being old? How do you like being an old man? Give me your report. And also, and here's the other thing. Like, So if that's not rude enough, this next one should really get you. He says, did you inherit your money or did you make it yourself? So again, I, I, I don't know about you, but where I come from, I mean, you can't ask people where their money comes from. Like that's just out of bounds. But maybe to make it even worse, like the topper is that Cephalus says, oh, well, I inherited some, but then I worked hard to grow it, right? So so it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Socrates says, self-made rich people are bores who only like to talk about money and, and how great money is. Imagine like if you went with your friends, you go over to your friend's house and their parents are there. You're going to be nice to them and be polite to them, but not Socrates. Socrates just goes right in on him. 
And, oh, and oh, by the way, so uh, this is actually interesting as well. The last insult or the thing that makes Cephalus like flee, like he just throws up his hands and runs away. The whole discussion of justice starts at exactly this moment. That's why Cephalus leaves. Socrates asks him, are you saying that justice can be defined as telling the truth and paying your debts? Yes, paying your debts. Paying your debts is the first definition of justice offered in the Republic. So put that in your Lannister pipe and smoke it, eh? Okay, last thing about Socrates. What happens next in the text actually is not like Socrates at all. Socrates does not claim to know things. His whole Socratic method proceeds from the point of view or from the assumption that he himself doesn't know anything. So he goes around asking questions. He, he questions, he grills supposed experts to find out, or really what he ends up doing is showing that they themselves don't know anything either. So, and that's obviously what got him in trouble, right? If you go around showing that people are who claim to have knowledge really have none, you, you don't make a lot of friends that way. With that said, then, so that's the reason why the Socrates comparison is not perfect. The Socrates thing, it's very shocking, the facial similarities, the fact that he's giving counsel to the kid, that he's helping the kid, and that he's rude and he just comes out with, oh, you know, you're the bastard of Winterfell. So all of those things, that's straight up Socrates. But at the point at which he starts to give him clear and direct answers to his problems and advice, that's where we break with Socrates, because that's not how the real Socrates rolled. Okay, so what is the wisdom that Tyrion lays on him? Well, here, here we go. I'll read it here. Never forget what you are, for surely the world will not. Make it your strength, then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it can never be used to hurt you. That sounds to me like basically stoic principles. Insight, self-control, self-knowledge. Don't allow things outside of you, things that you don't have any control over. Don't allow those things to touch you, to affect you. I do think that's straight out of Stoicism. Now let's read the next part. What do you know? Okay, so yeah, the next part is a dis conversation or back and forth between John and Tyrion. What do you know about being a bastard? Tyrion says, all dwarves are bastard in their father's eyes. John, what? You're your mother's true-born son of Lannister. Tyrion, oh, am I? Do tell my lord father because my mother died birthing me and he's never been sure. John, I don't even know who my mother was. Tyrion, well, some woman, no doubt. Most of them are. And then he drops this last bit of wisdom. All dwarves may be bastards, yet not all bastards need be dwarves. I mean, that entire section, that whole thing, underscores this idea that you supply your own meaning. You can be a bastard who's diminished by that or not, but you decide. You can get offended when people call you a bastard or not, but you decide. You don't know your mother, so you can carry it around like an anchor, or you can accept it and move on. You decide. And of course, that very last sentence, Tyrion's shadow was as tall as a king, well, when John first sees them, what's interesting is that he says, Jamie looks like a king. But after talking to Tyrion, 
and getting a dose of his wisdom and his knowledge, suddenly it's Tyrion. That seems kingly. Uh, At this point, I feel like we've pretty much talked this one to death. Um, So I think we're going to just, you know, peace out and just call it good for now. Uh, Thanks, gang, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.